Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, October 6th, 2014. Good to be back out at sea again. Had to take the ship in to harbor for a week to mourn the loss of a friend, close confidant, fellow co-conspirator. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, to stop, open up our Bibles, and see if what we're being taught as Christian doctrine really truly is biblical Christian doctrine. And if you listen to this program for any amount of time, you're going to find out that so many of the most popular pastors, preachers, conference speakers, and authors that are being put forward by the evangelical industrial complex that their messages do not square with God's Word. And it's a very serious thing. All right. Um, I've been dreading coming back on the air because... uh, the grieving process that I went through. Now, if you're wondering, what what, what are you grieving about, Rosebro? Well, um, if you don't follow me on Facebook and Twitter, and there's many of you who don't, uh, then you may be unaware of the fact that uh, last week I had to take time off in order to grieve the loss of my best friend. And my best friend and confidant, co-conspirator, fellow Christian apologist, and and he was a, a, a Southern Baptist pastor, uh, uh, Pastor Ken Silva of Apprising Ministries. Uh, Ken and I knew each other, this is going back to like 2005, is when we first really uh, met each other. And this was uh, through the uh, the work of of Ingrid Schleter. Uh, yeah, Ingrid Schleter was uh, a person that kind of helped put Ken and I on the map. And Ken and I started blogging at almost the same time. Uh, we were two of the first discernment bloggers uh, to uh, enter into the fray. And, uh, is it, and what's funny is, is we have some common ground in the fact that we were both very heavily influenced by the late Dr. Walter Martin. And, uh, and so uh, when I first was able to speak with Ken on the phone, I mean, there was immediately so much common ground that, I mean, literally, I, we just never looked back. And uh, what a lot of people don't know, and the reason they don't know it is because Ken and I never broadcast it. We never advertised it, uh, that Ken and I were literally closest of friends. And we talked, on average, four or five times a week. 
And when we were in the middle of uh, pitched battles with the emergence or POMO guys, uh, man, we were, <laughs> well, there were times when we were talking two or three times a day. And I don't know how he did what he did. I mean, the, the, when he was at his most prolific, he would be churning out three, four, five blog posts a day. I mean, he was just tenacious and unrelenting. And uh, what's funny is, is that because Ken and I were so good at coordinating our attacks, and this is the best way to put it, it created this, <laughs> helped create this weird, mysterious thing on the internet. And that is, is that um, there were people out there who, I, I think to this day would swear that Ken Silva and myself were one and the same person. They were thinking that Ken Silva was some alias that I had created, that, that I was out there trolling with the name Ken Silva. And <laughs> yeah, I, I crack up now because Ken and I, we literally laughed. We laughed all the time. This is one of those things where when we would see on the internet some of these uh, postmodern guys or Rob Bellians as he would call them uh with the, you know crying and moaning and you know claiming that Chris Rosebro and Ken Silva were the same person we would howl i mean <laughs> there were we had so many good laughs but Ken helped keep me sane Ken is 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 a guy that uh took help take the loneliness out of uh the discernment blogging and the work that i do here at fighting for the faith because one of the things that's very difficult psychologically uh, doing what uh, Ken and I did, uh, what Ken did, what I still continue to do, is that you find yourself at odds with with the main body, the main thinking of and the mainstream of evangelicalism. And uh, the you know, it's very easy for you to sit there and go, man, I mean, You've got this huge swath of Christians out there who have no problem with Rob Bell, uh, who are embracing emergent mysticism and meditation and practicing yoga and and doing all this weird stuff that you know you sit there and go, I, I, is there something wrong with me? I, that's kind of the temptation. Am I, is, what's wrong with me that I that I have a problem with this? And the the answer is simple: is if you know your Bible, you should have a problem with these things. And so where so many large swaths of mainstream evangelicalism have gone into this false doctrine and, and into growing apostasy, um, you know, those of us who, uh, you know, we, there, we're oftentimes likened to watchmen on the wall who are out there warning people that the, the enemy is, is at the gates. And in many cases, no, the enemy's in the gates. You, you, you got to take care. You got to, you got to be on your guard. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a lonely business and uh, Ken took away the loneliness and made it so that uh, psychologically, you know, we, we, we fed off of each other. And, uh, you know, <laughs> so many times we'd sit there and say, oh, we're so outnumbered, it's ridiculous. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, and uh, Ken's way of kind of turning a phrase was, is kind of funny. Now, I got to say this, okay? There are some who think that uh, Ken Silva is the man who came up with the term pastrix. However... The reality of the situation is, is that I'm the one who first used the term pastrix, and then Ken followed suit. So, <laughs> just just so you know, you know, Ken and I had that understanding. But you know, sometimes people wonder. They go, you know, how is it that 
you know, Chris Rosebro, a staunch Lutheran guy, uh, had, you know, as his best friend, you know, this, this Southern Baptist pastor of the small congregation. And, uh, you know, Ken and I, we, we had a, uh, the, the best way I can put it is professional respect for each other. You know, from time to time, the sacraments would come up and, you know, and usually my quip would be, uh, would be, well, you know, Ken, you do realize that uh, when, when you get to heaven, which is saying, you're basically saying, hey, listen, there's no doubt that you have the same faith I do in our crucified and risen Savior. What I would say to Ken is, is that, listen, when, when we get to heaven, you're going to be a Lutheran anyway. So, you know, and he would always crack up and laugh. He says, well, I always thought that, you know, when you die, Chris, that you're going to be a Baptist. And so, you know, that the reality is, is that, yes, there were some th- things that we, we disagreed upon. And, uh, and yeah, they, they have some weight and magnitude in, uh, in them, in uh, Christian uh, doctrine and theology. But we kept the core message, the core message and didn't let those other things keep us from basically fighting back to back. Uh, you know, we had each other's backs uh, in in the foxholes of uh, apologetics and discernment ministry. And so um, it's been very difficult as uh, Ken's health has been failing. Uh, you know, you know, basically he's he came in for a hard landing, is is a good way to put it. And um, but nobody, I don't think anyone quite saw that his death was this imminent. So um, when I got the news last week that he had died on Sunday night, um, it literally wrecked me. And, uh, you know, those of you who've been through grief know exactly what I'm talking about. Grief is this terrible thing. It is It is horrifyingly bad. It is having no control over your emotions, no control over what you're feeling. And you're, it's... It's like literally being in the middle of an of a icy ocean where the waves are they come crashing onto you at unrelenting intervals, and uh, you know I don't you know I I haven't grieved hard since the death of my grandpa back in 1987, and so it has been a long time since I have lost somebody close to me, and I've never lost my best friend. And, uh, and so last week was, it was, was a a very difficult week and, uh, kind of in looking back on it, um, I, I think it's safe to say that it's changed me, but I don't know how, um, I don't feel like the same person. And so it's one of those things where, um, you know, we'll just, we're just going to have to ride this out and see where it goes. But, um, you know, it, it definitely, definitely, you know, came out of nowhere, took me by storm and, uh, you know, and I had to walk through, you know, journey through the, the most difficult part of the grief. And the thing that helped me the most was, uh, coming up with the idea of putting together an online, uh, an internet based, uh, virtual, if you would, uh, uh, memorial service for Ken Silva, and we broadcast that on Pirate Christian Radio and had it run concurrent. You know, at the same time that uh, uh, Ben uh, Ben Ken's uh, physical remains uh, were being committed, uh, you know, to his family crypt in uh, there in New Hampshire, and uh, and so you know, it's one of these things where being able to focus on that and talk with so many people uh, to help put that together, and then. Finally, getting all of the different pieces and putting it together into a final uh, into a final product, if you would, um, it helped. It helped me get uh, some sense of closure um, and uh, make it possible for me to feel like, yeah, you know, 
the best thing I can do now is to, you know, take the take the pirate ship out of harbor and uh, get back out on the high seas and uh, start terrorizing heretics again. And so, um, you know, I, I finally feel like I'm to that point, and uh, that's why I'm doing a program today. And if you haven't already had an opportunity to listen to the online uh, uh, memorial service for Ken Silva, I put it into the podcast stream, including the uh, order of service so that you can sing the hymns along with it. And, uh, you know, my hope was that it would have a sense of uh, Christian dignity and reverence to it. And I think, I think we uh, succeeded. So, um, you know, it, it would mean a lot to me if you would actually take the time to listen, even if you were not that familiar with the, uh, the work of Ken Silva, um, if for no other reason than literally, um, on this earth, he was my best friend. So enough about that. And, uh, it's time to, uh, you know, to load the cannons and, uh, <laughs> get busy doing an, ep- an episode of fighting for the faith. So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of fighting for the faith. We're going to get right into it. And, uh, we're going to, um, take a look and, uh, take a look at the most recent, uh, video published by, uh, William Tapley, the third, third eagle of the apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times. I figure that's kind of a good way to kind of ease into things. By the way, if you've ever been wondering, what's the name of uh, the pirate ship? You know, you, you, you know, ships have to have a name. Well, her name is Aletheia. And if you don't know what Aletheia means, look it up. Anyway, so what we're going to be doing is we'll start off with a William Tapley update. He's taking a look at the prophetic significance of the latest and greatest uh, Geico commercial featuring the Tasmanian devil. Um, drinking a uh, energy drink, and um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't make that up. So we'll we'll take a look at what William Tapley is up to, and then we'll switch gears. And uh, this was a uh, you know the thing I wanted to get to uh, last week, but <clears throat> clearly I was preempted. Apparently, Rick Joyner. You know, remember we covered him uh, a couple weeks ago. Rick Joyner, you know, claims to have had a dream where supposedly we're all supposed to, you know, spend some time in heaven. This is, you know, the the the, the important thing that God wants us to do. Well, uh, Rick War, uh, not Rick Warren, uh, Rick Joyner now is uh, warning everybody that he's had a prophetic dream. And in the prophetic dream, he's saying that ISIS is coming to America as the gates of hell have opened. And you, you listen to this and you just go, really? God is giving a prophetic warning to a guy who twists God's word, you know, Rick Joyner, uh, who's almost single-handedly responsible for re-releasing the plague of uh, Todd Bentley onto the body of Christ uh, after Todd Bentley's uh, affair. And, um, yeah, because, of course, Todd Bentley, just known as a bastion of sound biblical doctrine. And so now he's warning America that uh, he's had a dream. And, uh, you know, of course, there's lots of people in the charismatic movement wondering if there's any credibility to this dream that Rick Joyner claims that he's had. Well, don't worry. Uh, Cindy Jacobs has swooped in to uh, help <clears throat> help give some credibility to uh, Rick Joyner's dream. So we'll... Uh, Take a look at what Rick Joyner has said. We'll take a look at um, Cindy Jacobs uh, coming to the rescue of Rick Joyner, if you would, to lend credibility to a so-called prophecy. And then to end up our number one, we're going to spend a little bit of time down at Lakewood, but we're not going to have a Joel Osteen update. Nope, nope. We're going to have, um, well, a Stephen Furtick update, because Stephen Furtick uh, recently preached at at Lakewood 
And uh, we will uh, spend some time listening to the opening to his message that he delivered at Joel Osteen's church. And then in hour number two, we're going to go down to the Summit Church in Houston, Texas, home of Joel Osteen, by the way. And uh, what we will be doing is listening to a sermon from the uh, Extreme Makeover Sermon Series. Extreme makeover. There's a sermon series. Yeah, yeah. There. See, that's the thing with these seeker-driven guys. They've, they, everything the world does, they think that they can do better, but they end up doing it worse. And so uh, we're going to listen to a sermon about time management. So, are you a chronic procrastinator? Well, this is probably the sermon that'll help fix you right up. Um, all law. I don't know if we'll hear the gospel, but oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you get what I'm saying. Okay, so we're going to uh, end up diving into the program proper, and since we're starting with the William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the End Times Update, that requires us to do this. coming soon, very soon, you'll see signs up in the sun and stars and moon, doom and gloom, very soon, rapture comes at night or noon, doom and gloom, very soon, if you're ready, you will meet the bride and groom. All right, there's uh, William Tapley uh, singing for himself. Uh, he has his own update music here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, so we're going to be listening as he tries to explain to us the prophetic significance of the latest Geico commercial featuring the Tasmanian devil drinking an energy drink. Okay, And uh, those of you who watch football, you've probably seen this already. If you're watching the baseball playoffs, you know I've seen this uh, air during the baseball playoffs a couple of times. And uh, gotta admit, I'm really pulling for the Dodgers. A little bit worried, though, you know, about the St. Louis Cardinals. Anyway, that's another story. But uh, as you listen to the commercial, see if you're able to get on the same wavelength as William Tapley to see if you can find the prophetic significance before he actually reveals what the prophetic significance of this uh, Geico commercial is. Here's uh, William Tapley. Here we go. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, and the co-prophet of these end times. Would you believe Geico has put out another amazing prophetic video? No. <laughs> no, I. in fact, I saw it many times before I saw this video. And this time it's about the destruction of the United States. What? And it features this cartoon character called Taz, which is short for Tasmanian Devil. Yes, I'm very familiar with the Tasmanian Devil. I grew up watching Looney Tunes. And just the name Devil ought to alert you to its prophetic nature. Ah, uh, you know, I totally missed that. I mean, <laughs> it just didn't dawn on me. You know, it's like, you know, when I was watching the baseball playoffs, watching the Dodgers, you know, game one, they lost to the Cards. Not happy about that. Kershaw had a terrible seventh inning. But, you know, when I saw the commercial while watching the Dodgers lose to the Cards that first night, you know, I should have been thinking, you know, whoa, look at that. There's a devil. 
it's a prophecy from God, you know. Remember that commercial about Stacy's deviled eggs? Yes. Now that you mention it, I do remember your lunacy on that one. So, without further ado, let's take a look at this new Geico commercial. Now, uh, take a look at it. Notice that it's a video channel, so I'm going to have to explain to you what is going on because, well, of course, I have to translate it for radio. So, thankfully, I have good translation skills. Uh, let's see what happens. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. All right, so there's a lady sitting in her bed with a, you know, a tablet device with the Geico uh, gecko. You know, they're saying 15 minutes could save you 15%. Everybody knows that. Well, did you know certain cartoon characters should never have an energy drink? All right. So did you know that certain cartoon characters should never have an energy drink? So they have the Tasmanian devil on set, and he looks like he's about ready to down a uh, energy drink. And so, you know, you've got paper and cameras and the lady with that board, you know, where they says, you know, take, you know, take 42 or whatever. Let's see what happens. Action. <laughs> so he just drank the energy drink. This is not going to be good. <laughs> And there he goes. He's totally out of control. Skyco. Introducing the. And then all of a sudden the commercial cuts to a, a serene scene with plates, you know, decorative plates that have different birds on them. Birds of America collection. 50 stunning hand painted plates commemorating the state birds of our province. And there's the Tasmanian devil just blowing through and destroying all of those plates. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. There you go. So can you figure out, before uh, William Tapley uh, gives us the entire prophetic significance of this Geico commercial, can you crack the prophetic code? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of clear where he's going to go with this, though, isn't it? Well, that was different. We see the Tasmanian devil drink an energy drink and then destroy the 50 bird plates, which represent the United States. That means the devil's going to destroy the United States. No way. I'm so glad that God used Geico to warn us about that. But did you catch the phallic symbol? <laughs> no, I did not see that. Did you catch the name of the energy drink? No, I didn't. It, well, no, I didn't. Let's start at the beginning. Yo, please. Now, in the first scene, we see an interesting clock. I'm not sure the significance of that time. It's a few minutes after 10. Maybe they are saying that that is the hour that the whore of Babylon is going to be burned with fire. And <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, so who's they? Who's the they are saying that that's when the whore of Babylon is going to... You see, do you really think that the people who put the Geico commercial together were in reality trying to warn us when the whore of Babylon was going to show up? I think they're trying to sell us car insurance. Of course, the whore of Babylon in Revelation refers primarily to the United States. Oh. Now, if the 10 and the 12 were reversed, then this clock would be saying that it's a few minutes before midnight. Uh-huh. But it doesn't. Now, does it? Now, if we look at this Tasmanian devil, Taz, yeah. he has two horns. Well, yeah, that's how his character is drawn. Could he therefore symbolize the false prophet, which... No, he does... He... <laughs> He's a Looney Tunes character. He's not even real. Has two horns. And also, the man standing next to Taz has a little horn. 
And of course, the Antichrist is known as the little horn in the Bible. Yeah, that's not a horn. That's it. That looks like he's got his cuff, you know, he's got a long sleeve shirt on and it looks like it rolled up a little bit, you know? Now, I could tell you what I think that little horn represents, but if I did, Anderson Cooper would put me on his ridiculous again because he doesn't like me talking about phallic symbols. <laughs> oh, man. And when we see Taz turn into a tornado, yeah, he does seem to have several heads. Quite a few horns, so maybe Tez does represent the Antichrist. Uh-huh, yeah, I don't think so. I think this is just normally how the Tasmanian Devil Tornado is drawn, you know? Now let's look at the plates which are destroyed in these cabinets. Okay. And, of course, they represent the United States. The narrator makes it clear that these are the birds of the 50 states. And if you count the plates, there are 50 of them in total, and in fact, there you took the time to count them all. Are two that you can't see in the middle cabinet, but when they start to fall over, you can count them. There are fifty. <laughs> you took the time to count them, and you you counted the forty-eight, but you found the missing ones when the cabinet fell. Really, in the cabinets, and there are seven on the table in front. I'm not sure the significance of the seven. I, I'm, I'm sh- surprised that you couldn't figure that out. It's possible those seven extra plates represent the seven apostate religions of the world. And there is a fairly prominent cross at the top center of that center cabinet. And those seven plates are also destroyed. Yeah. Now, I know a lot of you skeptics are out there are saying... Yeah, skeptics. That... Oh, that phallic symbol, that's just a coincidence. The 50 plates for the United States, the cross above the center cabinet, those are all just accidents. This was not planned. So now let's take a look at the name of the energy drink. Yeah, please. causes Taz to do all his destruction. Let's take a close look. What does that name mean? The name of the energy drink is Acme. Yeah, the Acme Company is, well, well known in Looney Tunes lore. A-C-M-E. Yeah. Of course, that means the peak or the highest. Right. But in this case, it means A-C-M-E. The A-C is the Antichrist. The (laughs) M-E is me. (laughs) So this... This, what the, the energy drink means is that Tasmanian Devil is letting everybody know that he's the Antichrist? Really? Taz is obviously saying, me, Antichrist. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, see, the thing is, is that the Tasmanian Devil is saying he's the Antichrist just as clearly as William Tapley is saying, please lock me up. Please take the camera away. Please get help for me. Yeah, I think that's pretty much what's going on there. I think you get the picture. 
All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, uh, we well, we have a Stephen Furtick update, but first we have a Rick Joyner and Cindy Jacobs update, apparently a prophecy regarding ISIS. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put God. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision and ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody, uh, expects, uh, expects, no, nobody expects the, um, purpose driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do, chief ex- weapons are. our chief weapons are, um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And- okay. Stop, stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah, 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 blah. Youth pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Don't pay more for travel than you need to. 
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, uh, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your favorite prophecy expert. And again, you'll thank me for that later. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says Join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $8.95 every month. That's it to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. But of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send that to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we cannot do what we're doing here without it. Moving along. Time for a new Apostolic Reformation update. The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genes have this mice. The Pinky, the Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. All right, so what we're going to be listening to is uh, audio from a recent video put up by Rick Joyner. And uh, let me read to you what is written about this particular video over at Charisma News. Yeah, charismanews.com. Headline reads, Rick Joyner issues urgent warning. ISIS coming to America as the gate of hell has opened. Uh-huh. And uh, here's what it says. On prophetic perspectives, Rick Joyner shares the troubling dream he had Thursday night about ISIS's plans in America and how martial law may save us. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, the weird thing about the video is that uh, for the most part, it is a lot of nonsensical, just 
slog through it kind of um, nonsense. I mean, that's, that's the best way I can put it. I mean, why on earth should I be, you know, prophetically terrified because Rick Joyner had a dream? I mean, we covered a couple weeks ago that Rick Joyner claims that we, we all, according to God, have to go to heaven. And he's not talking about dying first. You know, we all need to, you know, book a trip and, you know, spend some time up in heaven. Apparently, this is what, you know, Rick Joyner had in a dream. So he's had another dream about ISIS. Now, here's the thing. ISIS is a bona fide, for real, you know, threat. And uh, the, and their their reach, you know, is clearly beyond just the Middle East. Okay, so it wouldn't surprise me if ISIS is planning terrorist attacks here in the United States or planning some kind of you know action here in the United States. Or that you know, that's completely within the realm of possibility. But the thing is, all you got to do is watch the evening news, and you got that part of the ISIS story kind of down. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but uh, apparently Rick Joyner is, is issuing a prophetic warning here. And I think uh, Rick Joyner and uh, William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse, have something in common. It's just that Rick Joyner has clearly more you know, pr- production chops than um, William Tapley does. So here's Rick uh, Joyner to explain to us uh, this dream that he had. Here we go. Welcome to Prophetic Perspectives on current events. And I am going to give you a prophetic perspective today that is about as fresh as any I've ever ever given. Fresh, yeah, because, you know, when it comes to prophecy, freshness counts. I was awakened with a dream last night that is one of the most... Had a dream last night. ...startling I've ever had. Now, I'm so thankful that a few weeks ago I had a dream about going to heaven. Yeah, because you reported to us that God is telling us we all have to go to heaven or else. Because the one I had last night was about anything but heaven. But it was a very real warning, and I want to give you a warning right now. If you're one of those that need to have your ears tickled, that you don't want to hear anything negative or bad, turn this off right now. Yeah, see, the thing is, is that the ear-tickling passage in uh, 2 Timothy is regarding those who don't want to hear sound doctrine. They they won't endure sound doctrine, so they... Give they surround themselves with with teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. We'll get to a little bit of that, by the way, at the uh, at the end of this hour with uh, Stephen Furtick's visit to uh, Lakewood. Anyway, um, so yeah, you don't quite properly understand what Second Timothy chapter four is getting at when it talks about those people who will not endure sound doctrine and want to and they have itching ears. It's not that people you know don't want to hear negative things at all. It's that they don't want to hear the truth. And I am not doing this. It's some kind of promotional thing to to get you curious so that you'll watch the program. If you have trouble with fear and things like that, I need mature Christians to hear what I'm about to say. Yeah, um, a mature Christian would basically take what you've said and compare it to the Word of God and realize that what you're saying comes up wanting. So we should just rely on the Word of God. What I got so clear in a dream last night that I believe is is pretty imminent for our country, the United States. And um, I'm going to try to share it just the way I received it. Do you think that maybe that ISIS is being blown by the winds of the Shemitah? Uh, I'm not going to hold back anything because I don't think anything was held back to me last night. Now, also, if you didn't see the, the dream or the programs I did on the dream I received about heaven and bringing heaven to earth, it'd be a good... Yeah, I, I actually did see those and uh, covered it here at Fighting for the Faith and d- demonstrated that it's not biblical. Good time to maybe go back and 
look at them because that's our job. And I don't care what's going on on the earth. Our job is to bring heaven to earth. And yeah, no, actually, our job is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all that Christ has commanded. Yeah. So there, um, yeah, see, you're, you see, right in the introduction portion of this urgent warning regarding uh, a prophecy that you claim to have received from God the Holy Spirit regarding imminent ISIS actions, yeah, see, the doctrine that you're saying doesn't actually square with God's word. It keeps being off. Weird, huh? Why would God be speaking to you when you can't even rightly understand what his word, the written word, says? I believe in these times, uh, it is going to be more crucial than ever that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. More crucial than ever that we are seated. So, I mean, do I need to go up to heaven and find a seat? What are you talking about? There are many things that have just been doctrines to us before. They've got to be realities we're walking in now. Now, I'm going to tell you the dream. And uh, in a moment. <laughs> First, I want to say this. I believe, and and we have verified, we fully understand, and I believe you need to understand, if you're going to hear this, it's a warning about something that can be avoided if we react correctly. I believe this is true of many prophet such prophetic things. So you believe that this is a warning of something that could be avoided if we act correctly. So God's basically given you the ability to tell America that we've got to behave a particular way. And if we do, then ISIS won't strike us here on our turf. Hmm. They don't have to come to pass. Now, it may make me look stupid. I'm, I don't care about that. I think people who know me know by now I don't care about that. I care about doing my job. And my main goal is to hear on that great judgment day, well done, good and faithful servant. You were a watchman who sounded the alarm. Um, yeah. See, the thing is, is that if you were a watchman sounding the alarm, you wouldn't have actually been, like, almost single-handedly responsible for re-unleashing um, Todd Bentley on the body of Christ. You know, he's kind of like a, a doctrinal Ebola virus. You know what I'm saying? You were not one of those watchmen who slept on his watch. Or a shepherd who did not try to protect the sheep. That's that's my goal. That's my purpose. So I don't care what people think. But this is going to happen, and it is going to happen very soon if certain things aren't done very quickly. So uh, that's one of the reasons for my uh, wanting to get this out right away. Normally, anything like this, I want to process for days if I can. I felt such a... Uh, an eminence on what I'm about to share. But again, always keep in mind, I believe there's a lot of things we can do to stop certain things from happening. Many dreams, warning dreams, are about the schemes of the enemy that God is revealing to his people so that we can stop his schemes. But this is a Schemes of the enemy. Um, generally, that has to do with deception in the church. Scheme against, about, and against our country, the United States. And what I saw in the dream, I first saw the most horrific gang I have ever seen. I mean, this was a demonized gang. 
I mean, this was diabolical. They were diabolical in their nature. I can't imagine demons being more diabolical than these people were. They were invading the southwest United States. There were droves. It was coming like a plague. Now, I saw one of their attacks in great detail against a Texas ranch. It was a ranch I knew to be in Texas. Some things in dreams you just know. I knew the house, the family. This gang had herded up everybody there that was in the dozens of people, whether they were workers, family members, everybody. And I am not going to share the details of the dream after that. I hope to never share them. I don't want to share them with anyone. I don't want to remember them. They were so horrific. Cruelty on this level, you know, I mean, I have done in-depth studies of the cruelty in the Middle Ages and things like that, but this was a whole new level of demonic cruelty. It wasn't just about killing people. It was about bringing as much absolute pain, terror, everything else you can before death. And everybody in the most cruel way was killed. And, uh, you know, I, I just don't want to go into the details there. That, those are not necessary. But I think it is necessary to understand we're dealing with something there's no mercy. We may be dealing with, like, you know, bad pizza you had right before you went to bed. That is absolutely... Maybe you're watching too much, you know, of like Fox News and or MSNBC, you know? Not a, an option with these people. Matter of fact, they were ranked in these gangs. And these gangs were like military gangs. They had military equipment. But their ranking was based, I think, gained by their cruelty. And by their insatiable desire to be even more cruel in the way they killed people. Okay. So, yeah, by the way, this goes on for 30 full minutes. Now, those of you naysayers out there that are likely to say, hey, you know, you can't trust, you know, Rick Joyner. You know, he he's not exactly, you know, trustworthy. I mean, after all, I mean, he is almost single-handedly responsible for re-unleashing uh, Todd Bentley on the body of Christ. Um, you know, well, good news is the good news is is that Cindy Jacobs, that's right, of the Generals International of God knows um, the television program, um, she has swooped in, and uh, she has um, well basically said, yeah, this is legit. In fact, from Charisma News, the headline reads, Watch, Cindy Jacob responds to Rick Joyner's ISIS warning. And the story reads, Many of you have seen the prophetic words circulated by Rick Joyner. Apparently, you know, <laughs> Rick Joyner's dreams have been going off like, uh, you know, uh, pipe bombs in the uh, charismatic movement. And it's got everybody all prophetically, you know, uh, upset. And so, you know, well, here's what it says. It, it was undoubtedly a sobering and urgent word, and many people have asked Cindy Jacobs, the founder of Generals International, for her thoughts and response. <laughs> Why doesn't Charisma Magazine call me and ask for my thoughts and response? Anyway, so here's um, uh, Cindy Jacobs, kind of, sort of, ish, uh, supporting-ish uh, Rick Joyner's prophecy. Here we go. Hello, I'm Cindy Jacobs, and 
Many people around the world have asked for a response from Rick Joyner's dream, and I just thought I would give kind of a prophetic perspective on it and uh, sharing some thoughts I have. And uh, So Cindy Jacobs is going to give a per- prophetic perspective on Rick Joyner's prophetic perspective. Now, isn't that a prophetic perspective twice removed? I'm not sure how the math works on that. As I do this, I want to go back a bit historically to some things that the Holy Spirit has spoken to me that would kind of lead up to what I'm going to share about Rick's word. Yeah, so you're going to piggyback on Rick by reiterating the fact that you claim that you received direct revelation from God. Okay. Um. In 1996, I was on 700 Club, and Ben Kinchlow was interviewing me, and at the very end of the interview, he said, do you have a word for America? And there was something that I'd had that was a very uh, sobering word that I actually... I have a word for America, and I don't even need direct revelation from God the Holy Spirit as a download to my brain. I just need to know how to read. Here's the word. Ready? Repent. Repent. Repent and be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. Repent. Didn't relish giving, but I went ahead and shared. And essentially the word was that one day Islam would try to come to America and the streets could run with the blood of our children as they tried to take over the nation. Ah, so apparently, uh, I mean, all the way back in the 90s. Cindy Jacobs was having prophetic dreams that uh, Islam was going to come and, you know, cause our children's blood to run in the streets as Islam tried to take over America. Uh, (laughs) Clearly, apparently, um, disorganized um, Muslim Muslim militants are going to succeed where the Soviet Union and Japan and (laughs) Germany have failed. Wow. At that time, it seemed like extreme word. There was also some warning about dealing with racism, which can affect, we know, immigrants who've come to another land and uh, feel like they've been mistreated, which can cause them to be vulnerable to being radicalized. But as I gave that word, it just seemed... How could it ever happen? I mean, Islam was on the other part of the world as far as being radicalized. Um, uh, We didn't know uh, terror as it were in that regard and on that level here in the United States. Fast forwarding today, 2014, it doesn't seem so impossible. And we're still praying that it will never happen like that. But since that time, we have had 9-11 we have had uh, the Boston Marathon bombing, so it doesn't seem... Yeah, keep in mind Rick Joyner's dream was that the uh, Muslim militants were coming across in droves like locusts. You know, that would be like a military-type invasion. You know what I'm saying? Out of bounds. Uh, and I also want to say that as we look historically at our civilization, civilization of the United States, I want to share with you, because the Word of God says that he does nothing unless he first show his servants the prophets. Yeah. Um, again, that has to do with the Old Testament prophets um, and the uh, nation of Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. And uh, according to Daniel, the prophet, um, prophecy and vision have been sealed. Mm-hmm. Moving along. Well, I'm a prophet to nations and... Yeah, no, you're not. Not unless you spell it P-R-O-F-I-T. 
will, the kind of perspective God will give me will be historic or civilization-wide perspective. As I was reading Texas by Michener... And yet we've demonstrated here at Fighting for the Faith that, well, Cindy Jacobs is, by the biblical standard, a false prophet. About 10 years ago when we moved back to... Uh, Dallas from Colorado Springs, Colorado. I was reading uh, Michener's Texas just to kind of find out again about this land I'd moved back to. And as I was reading this uh, novel, which is more like a tome, uh, one thing I was struck was how there had been great empires and, and a real greatness given to different nations at certain times, but then they were diminished in their influence. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me something that was very chilling at the time to me. Mm, okay. He said, the United States is at the cusp of her civilization and that what happens in the next few years will determine whether we retained our greatness or we, whether we lost our place essentially in the world as a leader. Well, now again, we look uh, speeding up to a time when the... Apostolic Council of Prophetic Elders began to give warnings. The Apostolic Council of Prophetic Elders? Is this like the UN of prophecy nuts? He began to say, the United States, depending on what we do in our election cycles, will determine whether or not we retain our place in the world or whether we lose our greatness in the world. And I want to tell you, I travel around the face of this globe, and the United States no longer has the same place as a world leader that we once had. There are many reasons for that. I don't think it's a time for finger-pointing, I think, um, in a measure. Uh, all right. Okay. Now, notice what what's going on here. Um, what is uh, Rick Joyner pointing us to? What is Cindy Jacobs pointing us to? Well, Rick Joyner is pointing us to Rick Joyner. Cindy Jacobs is pointing us to Cindy Jacobs. Who does uh, William Tapley really point us to? Uh, William Tapley points us to William Tapley. But you know what none of them point us to? Christ and him crucified for our sins. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Sound doctrine. Sound biblical discipleship. Yeah, that the, all three of them. They, that's just like not even on their radar. But, you know, so if you're sitting here thinking, oh, well, this is the latest thing that God's speaking. Yeah, no, 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 no. God ain't speaking this. Okay. God doesn't speak to Rick Joyner or to Cindy Jacobs. These are false prophets. And, you know, the, the idea is, is that this is all a demonic, demonic, excuse me, demonic ruse to get your eyes off of Christ, kind of fear monger in a way. Maybe it's demonic, but, uh, but this is not from God, the Holy Spirit and fear monger in such a way that you aren't keeping your eyes on Christ, you're out of control, you're emotional, you're upset, but you're not really actually reading your Bible, understanding what Jesus has done for you, and rightly understanding God's Word. None of the false prophets ever point you to God's Word in its solid, rock-solid, sound doctrinal way. How it points us to Jesus, they always end up you know, patting themselves on the back and talking about how important they are. Yeah, talking about how important they are. <clears throat> Moving along. Yeah, that's right. Time for a Stephen Furtick update. He recently, like this past week, preached at uh, Lakewood in Houston, Joel Osteen's neck of the woods. You walked up to the 
indicator as to whether or not somebody really understands what the Bible says and teaches if they end up giving a glowing endorsement of somebody like Joel Osteen I think it does reflect on a person's character, morals and um, doctrine if you think that uh, Joel Osteen is actually somebody who teaches the truth well you got a big problem hang on a second, let me back this off yeah, sorry nice hook Anyway, so uh, what we're going to be listening to is we're going to be listening to uh, Joel Osteen introducing Stephen Furtick and Stephen Furtick giving his opening thoughts uh, over at Lakewood in Houston, Texas. And Joel Osteen, if you're not familiar with him, you might want to go back into the archives of Fighting for the Faith. I demonstrate week after week, month after month, that this man has no clue how to rightly handle a biblical passage. And when he opens his mouth and says, God wants you to do something or do or believe this or whatever, whatever comes out of his mouth is not something taught in the Bible. Uh, Joel Osteen is, in the truest sense of the word, a dangerous false teacher. He's a wolf, and he is a flat-out word-of-faith heretic. And anybody who is sound should have nothing to do with Joel Osteen, yet alone their preaching at, on his stage and giving a glowing endorsement of him the way Stephen Furtick does. At least that's what you're about to hear. Here we go. How many of you are glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning? What a great way to start the week off. I know God is not only smiling down on you right now, but like Deidre and everybody else been talking about, God's fighting your battles today. He's going before you right now, making crooked places straight. You keep this in your spirit. 2014 is the year of the abundance of rain. You're going to see God's goodness, God's... Really, 2014 is the year of abundance and rain. Yeah, there's a slick false teaching, don't you think? God's favor in new ways. We love you very much. So excited today to introduce a good friend of mine, Pastor Stephen Furtick from Charlotte, North Carolina. He is one of the fresh new voices for this generation. He's only... Yeah, a fresh voice for sure. Fresh with fresh false teaching. 
Exactly 34 years old. He and his wife Holly started a church in Charlotte back in 2006 with just a few people. Today they have thousands and thousands of people. He goes all over the world and he's full of passion, full of revelation. and Full of false teaching, full of narcissistic eisegesis, otherwise known as narcissism. That's where you lovingly read yourself in the biblical text. He's spoken here for us on a Wednesday night, but I wanted to have him come back for our weekend crowd. So would you give Pastor Stephen Furtick a great big Lakewood welcome today? Come on up, Stephen. Thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning, Lakewood. Before you take your seat, I want to know one thing. I just want to know one thing. I just want to know. I've been curious because I've been looking forward to coming. I just want to know one thing. What is it like to be a member at Lakewood? Well, it's terrible because every Sunday, Joel Osteen says, pull out your Bible and says, this is my Bible and says, today I'm going to be taught the word of God. And you know what? Never does he actually teach the word of God properly. Church, what is that like? Because, like, in my imagination, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, well, your imagination is really messed up here. In my imagination, it's like being a kid growing up in a Lego store where you could just, like... It's more like a sheep being uh, tended to by a wolf who's got... You know, he keeps giving these weird, awkward glances while stoking a barbecue, you know? Build whatever you like, just building blocks of faith and hope and joy. All Is it like that? Because I would think it would be like that. Touch somebody and say it's like that. Touch the other person that you didn't choose first and say it's like that. Amen. You may be seated. Hallelujah. I thought the early service was the spiritual crowd. And then I found out the Texans just played the Cowboys early today. And so we're praying, we're praying. Jesus said, a house divided cannot stand. For any conflict that exists in your house, I cast out demons of division in Jesus' name. Pretty pumped to be here. Pretty pumped to have my wife with me. She doesn't get to travel with me a lot because our kids are young and demanding. But she came to Lakewood. She said, I'm going with you to Houston. So she likes you. So neither yourself, Stephen, or your wife have enough biblical discernment to know that Joel Osteen is a flat-out heretic and falsely teaches the word. My pastor always says, my pastor's name is Craig Rochelle. He always says... Yeah, and we've covered a lot of Craig Rochelle here at Fighting for the Faith and demonstrated that he's an epic Bible twister, too. It's weird. It's like wolves hang out together or something. You ever heard of a wolf pack? It's the things that no one sees that produce the results that everybody wants. And when I first got exposed to your ministry, the ministry of this great church... I wanted to know what exposed is a good way to put it, you know, like exposed to a dangerous virus. Know what's the secret of it? Not because I want to imitate what you do. We all have to be ourselves, but I always like to see what are people doing that's effective. And I think a lot of pastors like me come in to learn from what you're doing. And so I just wanted to know how are you able to reach so many people? And uh, and I figured it out. I learned the secret. I I, I found it out though. It, 
took me a little time. I wanted to. Yeah, actually, there's no secret to this. The Bible actually explains ex- what it is. What's the secret sauce of Joel Osteen? It's found in Second Timothy chapter four. Here's what it says: I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, to preach the word. Uh, Joel Osteen doesn't do that. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Uh huh. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So you want to know the secret of Joel Osteen's success? It's real simple. He tells people what they want to hear, not the truth. That's the secret sauce over at Lakewood. We continue. To know, you know, how does Pastor Joel, Pastor Victoria, how do they encourage so many people? And um, and I figured it out through through just a series of, of text messages that I received from Pastor Joel in the last year or two. See, because remember, it's the things that no one sees that produce the results that everybody wants. And I think probably every preacher would like to, to pastor a great church like you and look in the camera and reach millions of people and have their... Yeah, um, looking in the camera has nothing to do with being a good pastor. In fact, it's probably the thing that keeps people from being good pastors. Their own radio channel. By the way, that's going to be so cool because people are going to switch the soundtrack of their life. And they've been riding around listening to all kinds of... Yeah, that's right. Joel Osteen is getting his own channel on Cirrus. Yeah, so, so that this disease spreads even farther. Crazy stuff, and, and now they're just going to, like, accidentally just get shot up with hope. Like steroids. I like that. And, um, by the way, Miss Doty, my mom wants you to lay hands on me because she texted me last night. And she said she wants her son to have his own radio station, too. Come on, can we thank God for Miss Doty? But here's the secret. Okay, here's the secret. Here's why Pastor Joel Victoria in this great ministry encourages so many people. Um, I cracked the Joel code. I figured it out. And all you preachers that are watching online, I figured it out. So last year I went through a really hard time. The hardest challenge I've had yet as a pastor. Um, our church went through uh, a series of events. It was just, it was just a challenging time. And the first and most consistent texts that I got from outside of people who are just really, really close to me and family were... Would this be those news exposés regarding your million, multi-million dollar home and you know, stuff like that? Or we're from Pastor Joel. You'll get through this. You, you, you can get through this. You will get through this. And I, when I read the text, I like to imagine it in his voice. It just gives it... A little extra something. And and you, you can touch somebody next to you and say, you can, you will. And see, it's one thing to write a book about that. But to take some time out of your schedule and text somebody who's going through something. Like, he didn't have to do that. And then, and then I was speaking at a conference this summer. And as soon as I step off the stage, my phone is blowing up with texts from Pastor Joel. Heard you did great at the... He wasn't even there. Heard you did great at the conference. I don't know if he's just guessing. You may, may have done great. That's, that's the last time I spoke here, I was leaving and, and so yeah, again, you know, wolves hang together. And so, you know, you guys, you know, you just mutually enjoy each other's false doctrine and Bible teaching. Somebody on staff chased me down. They're like, hey, hey, best of Verter, best of Verter, come back, come back. And they hand me a phone and I'm like, who's on this phone? It was a bad phone. And, and they said, uh, and I picked it up 
and it was Victoria. Hey, I just had to let you know what that message meant to me. We had to, I had to go, but I had to let you know. It's those kinds of things that no one sees. Well, it's those kind of things that you've now made public that make it very clear to me. You, Stephen Furtick, are not a man who stands for the truth. You are a man who doesn't care what God's word says. And you align yourself with and hang with and allow yourself to be encouraged by men who falsely handle God's word, who twist God's word and mangle it and don't preach the truth. All in the name of Jesus, too, by the way. But just because you invoke the name of Jesus doesn't mean that you're actually preaching and teaching what Christ has done in his saving office or exalting him or teaching that which is in accord with sound doctrine that points us to Christ and what he's done. Yeah, so... There you go. What was done in the, you know, basically behind the scenes. Well, thank you, Stephen Furtick, for letting it out in the open. And now we know. I mean, if anyone had a doubt as to whether or not Stephen Furtick was Orthodox, I think this should put all of those doubts to rest. What do you think? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at piratechristian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to go down to the Summit Church in uh, Houston, Texas, and uh, listen to a sermon about uh, extreme makeovers and time management. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Hey, have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. So are you a procrastinator? Ah, 
Don't worry, there's a seeker-driven church out there finding a relevant life message with some tips and tricks you know, to help you with that. You can experience an extreme makeover. Yeah, because, you know, that's what the Bible's all about, right? Yeah. Let's do this right, though. Hey, ho! The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Summit Church, Houston, Texas. Uh, the uh, Reverend Nate Anderson presiding. The name of the sermon series, Extreme Makeover. The name of the sermon, Time and Energy Edition. Yeah, I mean, how did, on earth did the Christian church survive for two millennia without having um, time management sermons? You know what I'm saying? Well, maybe for 2,000 years the church can never find the time to talk about such vapid things. Don't you think the church has something more important to talk about? I mean, the reality is this, is that if, you, if you're struggling with time management, is your pastor really the guy that you're going to go to to get that problem solved? <laughs> yeah, no, normally I think of pastors, you know, I go to them for particular reasons. Like, you know, just like, you know, I'd go to a doctor for a particular reason or to, you know, a chiropractor for a particular, or a dentist for a particular reason. I don't normally go to my dentist when I'm, you know, when I have a procrastination problem, something I pointed out, you know. Anyway, you get the point. So uh, let me go ahead and we'll back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is uh, Nate Anderson in his sermon entitled "Extreme Makeover: Time and Energy Edition." Here we go. To Extreme Makeover. This is our third session in the series, and this morning we're going to talk about renovating our time and our energy. And really, what we mean... When- okay, now, off, before we get anywhere else, okay, before he says anything else, show me in your Bible, think about where, okay, think about where in your Bible does it talk about time and energy and uh, things like that? Where, what are all the big time and energy passages? Which dogmatic text or systematic theology can you go to where, you know, it talks about, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity, original sin, uh, soteriology, and then time and energy? Can you think of any? Yeah, I can't think of any. When we talk about renovating our time and our energy, a lot of that comes down to what? Our schedule. Our schedule. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. This is room number two out of six rooms in our house, the house of our life, that we're going to be doing some major renovation. And here's the thing. Managing our time or our schedule is not necessarily easy. And did you know that probably for a Christian, it's more difficult it's more difficult than for a non-believer. Let me read something to you from a book called The Tyranny of Time. Maybe you'll find this interesting. It says this, with respect to... T- yeah, it doesn't even matter if the book The Tyranny of Time was actually written by a Christian author. It's still not found in the Bible. Yeah, we've got a problem here. Your job, Nate, is to preach the word. Time, Christians are a good deal worse off than many. The author is a Christian, by the way. This is especially the case if they live in a large city, belong to the middle class, have managerial or professional positions, or combine outside employment with substantial household responsibilities. I mean, does that describe some of your lives in here? I mean, that's most of us. 
we have jobs, we have household responsibilities, we have a family life. Christians and people raised in a Christian setting tend to take their work more seriously, which is a biblical principle, than others. They also place high value on family obligations, another biblical principle. And they often are in the forefront of the community and charitable associations. Again, that's a biblical principle. The upshot of this commitment to work, community, and family is, as my eldest son commented, Christians are like trains, always in a rush and always late. That doesn't have to be the case. And I think that's what we want to talk about this morning. When we factor in our responsibilities as believers, our biblical responsibilities, one of the things that we find out is that managing our time and managing it well is actually a little more complicated or a little more difficult than it is for the life of the ordinary person. God calls us to a high standard in our relationships, having a healthy marriage and having a healthy family life. Well, it's a lot easier not to have that and just to go through life. You know, in the big difference between a healthy marriage and family life and an unhealthy one, a very big difference is how much time do you have and do you devote to your family? And so as believers, God calls us to a higher standard to commit more time. That creates more challenge. As Christians, we have spiritual commitments we have to fit in. Fellowshipping with each other, spending time in service every Sunday. That's something that the Bible requires of us, that God requires of us. How about finding... Okay, now what we're going to do here is we're going to uh, open up our Bibles and we're going to do a little bit of a... We've got to make a distinction. We've got to understand what the, what's going on here. Part of what we're hearing from uh, Nate Anderson is uh, his failure to properly distinguish law and gospel. And so as a result, what we're getting are basically from him are a lot of, well, shoulds or do's or things you gotta, you gotta, okay? Um, The problem is, is that um, we have to understand what the primary purpose of God's law is. And then we also have to make a distinction between what is God's law and what are, well, man-made imperatives that have somehow risen to the level of somehow being a divine uh, commandment? you, you got to make the difference here. So if you're going to do the law, you got to do it right. So, okay, we'll talk about the law. We're looking at Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, where Paul is finishing up his argument regarding, you know, the fact that there's no one righteous. So, you know, he basically declares every human being, uh, naturally born descendant of Adam and Eve, well, they're uh, under sin. Here's what it says. So are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that'd be the whole world, they're under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified or declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, this is foundational. Primary purpose of God's law. It was never given in order to save you. The primary purpose of God's law 
was to demonstrate and show you that you are a sinner. Okay, That's its primary purpose. So when a pastor gets up and only preaches the law as if, well, you got to, God wants you to do this, you got to, you got to. Now, there may be things that he's saying that are truly the will of God. Oftentimes, though, what they preach um, are basically, you know, a watered-down law or worse. They take, you know, kind of man-made principles, accuse them of being biblical principles or commandments, and then it always is the thing you got to do. You got to, you got to, you got to, you got to. And the problem is, is that, because he's making it sound like our relationship with God hinges on our obedience, well, then that turns the law into the thing that we've got to fulfill in order to be saved. Ultimately, that's the where this thinking ends up, even if he's not even really thinking that at all. So you have, if you're going to preach the law, you have to preach it primarily to accuse people of sin and to show them that they have fallen short. And the only solution for sin is the shed blood of Christ. And so the call of the gospel is to repent and to believe and to be forgiven. And then you bear fruit in keeping with that forgiveness in that repentance. So we've got a problem here in that we've got this extreme makeover theme going on in this sermon. And already we've got a lot of shoulds and yagadas. But yeah, this is bad law preaching that doesn't understand the primary purpose of the law um, is to condemn us of our sins. So what he's doing is condemning everybody that he's preaching to. Now the question is, will he give us the gospel as the solution to it? Well, let's find out. ...time for a devotional life, for prayer, for reading your Bible, connecting with God. Those are things that we're called to do that maybe the ordinary person wouldn't have to do. And so now we've got to fit... Not only- well, see, the thing is, is that every ordinary person is called to uh, have no other gods except for the God that is... So, yeah, they actually everybody's called to repent and believe in God. Not only do we have to fit in more time for our family and more time for our marriage, but now we have to fit in more time for God. And actually, let's flip-flop those because more time for God should be first. And so we're... Cha- should be, should be. And this is law preaching, but it's bad law preaching. We continue. Challenge. Scripture says that everything we do, any work that we do, that we're supposed to do it with excellence. We're supposed to, as a matter of fact, the Bible says it this way, we're supposed to do it as if we're doing it for God. Yes, this is true. But all of those commands, it's going to come under the third use of the law. By the way, the law has three uses. First use, according to the way the Lutherans number it, the, uh, the Reformed number these differently, but they still have three uses. First use of the law is the civil use of the law. This is the the law used by government to punish evildoers and basically keep anarchy from breaking out. Second use is the primary use, and that use is to convict us of our sin. Third use shows us what a good work is, and that's only for Christians, and it's always in light of the good news of the gospel that we're forgiven in Christ, that we are set free from bondage to sin, death, and the devil, and this is now what freedom looks like. So you got to be careful in how you preach the third use of the law, because if you preach the third use without the gospel, then what ends up happening is, is that oftentimes the law will just default to second use and convict you of sin, and in that case, well, yeah, that's not going to be a very useful thing. We continue. In other words, we're supposed to give our very best effort and do our very best. Well, it's harder to do your best than it is to not. Right, and everybody listening to you is guilty of not doing their best. So are you going to point them to their crucified and risen Savior who forgives them of that? 
And so now we have to not only spend time with God and have that commitment, be faithful to our family and have time for that, but now we have to work hard and with excellence as if we're working for God. And then on top of that, every Christian, every Christian, every believer is called to ministry. All of us. We're called to do ministry. We're called to service. How do you fit all of that in on top of an ordinary life? Managing our time becomes very, very important in the life of a believer. If we're going to be a good steward of our Christian life, then managing our time well becomes really important. It's not a surprise to me, considering all that, that, you know, a couple weeks ago when we... Yeah, be careful how you preach here, because if you don't preach the gospel, you're going to give everybody a reason to, well, manage their time better by not be going to church anymore. You know what I'm saying? filled out our connection cards and so many of you filled out, hey, these are the areas where I feel like I need the most help. And 77% of you said that time and energy is an important thing where you need some help and some renovation, 77%. The only thing that rated higher was what we talked about last week, money and finance. Because it's very difficult to do the things that we should do, or at least if we don't do it the right way. It's very difficult to do things that we should do and do them the way that we're supposed to do them and fit that into our life. You know, one thing to consider about managing your time is that actually you can't manage time. Did you know that? You can't manage time. Time is different from every other resource that we're supposed to steward or manage. Let me read something else that Alan McKenzie said this. It's a very unique resource because it cannot be accumulated like money and it can't be stockpiled like raw materials. We're forced to spend it, whether we choose to or not, at a fixed rate of 60 seconds every minute. It can't be turned on and it can't be turned off like a machine. It can't be replaced like a person. And it's irretrievable. We actually can't manage time. There's nothing you can do to change time. Time is going to flow, and it's going to flow forward, and it's going to flow at a certain rate. You know, something else about time is every one of us, no matter how well we steward it, we're all given the same amount. All of us get 24 hours in a day. Nobody gets anything different. No one gets on an accelerated plan where you get 25 or 28 hours in your day because you manage your time so well. I've heard it said that managing your time is synonymous with managing your life. And I think that's really, I think that really gets to the heart of of what managing our time and energy is about, is managing our life. In other words, you can't control time, but you can control what you do during the time that you have. That's actually what we're doing when we're talking about managing our schedule, managing our time. We're talking about managing what we're doing. And the irony here is he hasn't managed his time properly because he's not actually doing his job of preaching the word, which means he should have been in the biblical texts, exegeting and you know reading his commentaries, maybe even spending some time translating them from the original language so that he can properly handle and then preach and teach God's word. But he didn't do that, now did he? We're doing our actions, our behavior. And so we need God's help to do that. Solomon said this in the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 9. He says this, We plan the way we want to live, and planning is good, but only God can make us able to live it. 
And so we need God's help with planning our time, with planning our life, with scheduling our day, with managing what we do. So I kind of feel like maybe we opened with a downer almost. I mean, hey, guess what? You have to do more than an ordinary person, and you don't get any extra time to do it. You have to. You have to. You have to. Yeah. Is this, which use of the law is this? Is this really even third use? Have a good day. I mean, you, you, you could very easily be feeling overwhelmed right now. And so please don't, don't, don't feel overwhelmed this morning. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to share. Why shouldn't they? Um, you can probably find many more, but I'm just going to share four stewardship principles about more law. You're going to give us more law. Yeah. Notice you've convicted everybody and you're not preaching Jesus. Who is the only solution for our sin? About how to manage your time, your energy, your schedule that should help. Now, listen, I can't give an all-inclusive information uh, message and seminar about how to plan your schedule and your time. I mean, books and books and books and books have been written about that. What I do have time this morning is to share with you four principles, stewardship principles, biblical principles, that if you apply them, will help you manage your life better. So here's the first of the four principles. Remember, busier is not better. And you're getting this from where? Maybe he can get this from the story of Mary and Martha, you know? I feel like I should say busier is not betterer. This seems to flow better. So write it how you want. Busier is not better. Our goal to renovating our schedule should not be to discover ways that we can become more busy. I think sometimes that what we think. I've got more to do. I'm not getting it all done. So if I can plan it just right and, and pinch a little bit here and squeeze something in there, I can be more busy and do more things. And that, that's the same thing as managing your schedule. But it's not. Our goal with managing our time and our energy should be more like this. Our, our goal should be to become physically healthier. You do that by gaining more rest and the appropriate amount of rest. Our goal should be to become emotionally healthier. How do you do that? Well, one way you can do that is by eliminating stress. That also affects your physical health, by the way. To have healthier relationships. That should be a goal. How do you do that? By finding ways to schedule in more quality time for the relationships that matter. Our goal should be to become more efficient and more effective. And which biblical text, again, are you preaching this from, or are you just browbeating us based upon modern time management principles? That's kind of like, you remember the book, Work Smarter, Not Harder? Yeah, that's it's not found in the Bible. It's not next to like Revelation of the Book of Jude, or it's not the fifth gospel. You know what I'm saying? You don't actually have to become more busy and do more to become more effective. And so, planning our time and our schedule helps with that. Um, having here's another big thing that that should be a goal: having the reserve. Energy reserve, strength reserve, emotional reserve, time reserve to be able to handle the unexpected. I think that's a big thing for many of us. And the big time reserve passages are found where in Scripture? 
That when something, we're good, we plan everything to the T, and as long as everything stays on schedule and nothing unexpected happens, we're fine. And as soon as something blows up our schedule, man, that's it. And so by planning properly, we can actually build a reserve to be able to handle those things. I think you get to understand that busy is not better when you think about it in the context of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Yes, and uh, the context there is really those who are heavily burdened by the commands of the Pharisees and the mosaic, well, piled on to the Mosaic covenant. You know, Jesus gives us rest because salvation is a free gift. Come to me if you are weary and if you have heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Now, here's what I think I think if 77% of us feel like we need help with our time and energy, then there's a good chance that 77% of us are feeling weary and are feeling like we're carrying heavy burden. And so Jesus' answer is, I will make you more busy. Yeah, again, Jesus didn't make that statement in the context of time management. No. His response is, come to me and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. What you need is rest. Come take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. See, God is is, is not interested in trying to make you more busy. What God wants to do is help you to be more effective, more efficient, and to find time to rest. Again, Jesus didn't make that comment in the context of time management. It's not like the people in the you know the children of Israel back in the time of Jesus's day were having problems with you know organizing their lives and their day planners. God offers you rest. There's some pitfalls with being a busy person, and and these might help highlight for you why being busy shouldn't be the answer for managing your time better. I'll do more. I'll do more. I'll do more. Wrong. Wrong answer. Number one. People might stay busy, and many people do, because of their egos. People stay busy because of their egos. This happens when we want to... Where is he getting this information from? It's not in the Bible. ...appear important. In other words, we do more, we fit things into our schedule, so that we can feel important to other people. In our society, a crowded schedule... An incredible number of hours and heavy demands and many responsibilities are supposed to show how successful we are as people. I can say that's something that I have to check in my own life. This idea that how much I do and how busy I am qualifies me to other people, makes me feel important, makes me look good. And I think there are a lot more people in this room than just me that deal with that. But it's a trap. It's a trap. It's not the truth. Galatians 1.10. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, then I would not be Christ's servant. 
So here's the problem. Anytime we Yeah, the book of Galatians is not a time management book. That's not what the book of Galatians is about at all. Ugh. Do things to please other people, that stands in the way of us being Christ's servant, which means it stands in the way of good stewardship. As stewards of our time, we're serving God with our time. And as we serve Him with our time, we have to be willing to do what He wants. The problem is when we're more interested in pleasing people, then we'll add things to our schedule that don't belong, and that interferes with our service. We become poor stewards. I mean, yeah, let's take a look at that book of Galatians. Why don't we? I, I mean, he was reading from the opening portion of it, right? Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Let's see if the Apostle Paul has time management on his mind as he's penning these words to the churches in Galatia. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed, damned, anathema. As we have said before, so I say again, if anyone is preaching to a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Ah, so the context that Paul makes the statement about not striving to serve man, but he's serving God, is in the context of not yielding to the false gospel that the Judaizers were preaching. That's the context. It has nothing whatsoever to do with time management. And the sad part is the people there at the Summit Church in Houston, you know, listening to Nate Anderson here, have have now been confused into believing in some way that Paul that that Paul that Paul talking in Galatians one ten is talking about the importance of not trying to be a people pleaser so that I can properly manage my time. Oy, that's not what this text is about. Let me give you another problem, and this is really just a flip side of the same coin. But people stay busy because we're more concerned about pleasing men than God. Isn't that what you just said? Let, let, let me explain. I think it's two sides of the same coin, and different people in this room are going to hear this differently. Some of us, in pleasing people, it's about ego, striving to be important, taking on responsibility so we can show people how important we are. I think some of you can understand that, probably relate to that. On the flip side of the coin are those of us who will do things just so that people will approve of us and not reject us. It's a little bit different. And so then when someone calls and asks you, hey, um, can, you, uh, can you do this for me uh, tonight? Isn't that exactly the entire premise behind the seeker-driven church methodologies? Well, why tonight? It's an emergency. Okay, Yes. Because I don't want you to be mad at me or reject me. 
you throw something in your schedule that doesn't belong because you're afraid of the rejection you might get from someone else. And we're just trying to please people. You know, that can happen at work. Somebody doesn't plan their schedule well and can't do something they're supposed to do, and so you volunteer yourself to take the burden and finish the project for them. Only problem is you don't have time to finish the project. But here's what happens. I mean, nobody wins when that happens. Because one, you don't have time to finish the project, so you, so you don't do it well. Somebody who didn't plan well doesn't uh, experience uh, the, the uh, repercussions of their poor planning, so they don't learn how to manage their time well. Then what happens is you had to sacrifice time that was scheduled for something else, so there's something else that you're not doing well either. A lot of times that becomes time in relationships. Time's supposed to be at home with your family. Or like when a pastor reads time management books rather than the Bible. Family, with your husband, with your wife, with your kids. And so what we have to do is we have to be strong enough to say, you know what? I've got to do what God wants me to do. I've got to be a good steward of my time, and I've got to do the right things to please Him and not worry about pleasing other people. The big problem with this issue here is that we never say no. So we have to learn how to say no when it's not the right thing to do. Let me tell you another problem with being busy is a lot of people, a lot of us, get really busy to cover up our laziness. Now, it sounds like a complete oxymoron, right? How can you be really busy and be really lazy at the same time? What we do is we fill up our schedule with all kinds of things that we want to do so that we won't have time to do the things that we dread, the things that are more important in our life. Folks, that's a problem. We get busy with things that make it easy for us to avoid time in our relationships, our spiritual responsibilities, taking time to do proper budgeting, eating healthy. You stay busy enough, you never have to stop and go to the grocery store or cook, and you have a built-in excuse. I don't have to eat healthy because I don't have time. Yeah, it's like, you know, I have this built-in excuse. I didn't have time to actually, you know, exegete a biblical passage. I was too busy teaching people about time management, which is not the job of a pastor. I'm not pointing any fingers at me during that, but... (laughs) Chores and cleaning, doing homework... Proper rest, planning, all things that are very important. But what we do is we fill our time with all of these things that aren't important so that we're so busy that we don't have to do these other things. And that is a kind of laziness. It's really unhealthy. It's really unhealthy. It's like, imagine that... Yeah, it's not more unhealthy than preaching only law without any gospel. If what you did... Before a meal is you just stuffed your face with a bunch of candy and got full so that you couldn't eat something that was good for you. I mean, that's what we expect children to do, but not grown-ups. Being busy doesn't mean we're managing our time and our schedule well. Let me give you one more. People stay busy because of greed. This happens when our focus is on material things. And Jesus really hit on this in Matthew chapter 6. Let me read just a couple verses from there. He says, don't store up treasures here on earth. This is verse 19. Don't store up treasures here on earth. Yeah, Matthew chapter 6 is the Sermon on the Mount, which is not the great sermon on time management that Jesus delivered. Like, not at all. Earth, where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. 
just to make another buck, man, we'll just work and we'll work and we'll work. We'll take on a new job. We'll take on a new project. We'll work, we'll work. We'll try to get that raise and we'll work, we'll work, and we'll work. He says, whoa, don't spend all of that time and energy trying to build up treasures here on earth that aren't even going to last. Yeah, the point is in the context of um, who do you trust? Who's your God? Who's your deity? Do you believe in that the Lord, the God of Israel, is kind and merciful and that he will care for your needs? Or is money your God? You see, that's kind of the context that Jesus is delivering this in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, what's funny is it's a lifestyle we tend to honor, right? We call it, many times we call it a good work ethic. And that person's willing just to work and work and work. They're successful because they worked and worked and worked. That's a good work ethic. The problem is it's not necessarily a biblical work ethic. And that makes it bad stewardship. Yeah, kind of like it's bad stewardship for a pastor to spend time in a sermon teaching time management rather than preaching the word. Like that, you mean? He goes on in verse 21, Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. In verse 24, No one can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. And so what he's describing there is really kind of a conflict of interest. Just like pleasing people is a conflict of interest. And yeah, the conflict of interest is who's your God? In your stewardship, it conflicts with you representing what God wants you to do. So is being focused on money and greed. That suddenly you want to make, God wants you to make a decision with your time, but what if that decision costs you? What if it costs you a contract? What if it costs you in taxes? What if it costs you because he's asking you to give? Uh, yeah, the Sermon on the Mount is not a tithing text either. Maybe it costs you getting that new car. What if what God asks you to do costs you? That's the problem. Yeah, I agree. You know, like God asks pastors to preach the word. And, you know, if pastors do that, then they don't have growing mega churches. So, you know, they, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. And so we stay busy, 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 busy because we're chasing the dollar, 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 dollar. But, you know, it's not just greed for money. It can be power. It can be prestige. It can be influence. Yeah, you know, greed for a large church and, you know, a book contract with the uh, evangelical industrial complex, you know, things like that. Those are all things that we can hunger for and make our schedule busy and be about. But busyness is not necessarily good stewardship of our time. So if being busy isn't the answer and doesn't solve the problems related to our time and energy, what is? Well, the answer is this, and this is principle number two. God's will is the way. Doing God's will is what matters. Law on top of law. So now the law becomes the solution for your law breaking. No, it's repentant faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If we can be about doing God's will, now, this isn't the only, the only thing, but if we can be about doing God's will, then we'll begin to bring our schedule back into order. Yeah, and uh, which of you can say that you perfectly do God's will on a daily basis? Hmm? Remember that God's will is the way. Ephesians 5, verse 15. 
Live life then with a due sense of responsibility, not as men who do not know the meaning or purpose of life, but as those who do. Watch this. He says, make the best use of your time. Despite all the difficulties of these days, don't be vague, but firmly grasp what you know to be the will of God. Making the best use of your time. Again, Ephesians 5 is not exactly a time management passage either. Um, Yeah, let's take a look at the context of what's going on here. Number one, what does Paul do in the opening portion of Ephesians? He preaches the gospel. In chapter 2, he reminds them that they were dead in trespasses and sins and that God made them alive in Christ and that we're saved by grace through faith. And this is not of ourselves. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. See, there's a right way to preach good works and there's a wrong way to preach good works. And what you're hearing in this sermon is diabolically wrong as far as how to preach good works because it's completely separated from the cross. So now we're parachuting into uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm not sure what translation he's reading, but let's take a look at what's going on here. And um, we'll start at chapter 5, verse 1. So in light of the gospel, in light of the fact that we're saved by grace and Christ has redeemed us, purchased us, bought us, we are God's workmanship. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best of the time because the days are evil. Ah, That's what's going on here. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So what's the will of the Lord? Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting one to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's, these are the things that he's talking about, not time management. We continue. It's about knowing and doing the will of God. That's how we make the best use of our time. 
Now, that's not something you're going to find in every time management book, but you're going to find it in your Bible. Making the best use of your time means you have to firmly grasp God's will for your life. This might be the most important principle that you could know, meditate on, begin to apply, and work into your life. The man is saying these words while doing the exact opposite of what God's word commands him to do. So he's not doing the will of God in this sermon. That's the weird part. Life. Because what happens is, as you get tuned into God's will, you get tuned into what belongs in your life and what doesn't. And I think we could all agree that if there was a perfect person who did everything exactly according to God's will, that their schedule would be fine. They would never have to handle anything they didn't have time for. They'd never be stressed out because of time. And they would be just fine. What if I asked you to apply for a job at, this, at another church? This church happens to be in a third world country. So you'd actually have to, I don't know what your career is, but you'd have to be willing to quit your job. You'd have to be willing to uproot your family and move to this third world country, join this church in a foreign place. And, and here's the job description. It seems kind of weird. But what they want you to do is start a cultural revolution. Now, that sounds like an exciting job, though, right? I mean, that sounds like something really important. And so they want you just to find a cause and then find a way to take that cause to start a cultural revolution, and they want it to spread worldwide. They want it to become viral. Come do it. Come move here. Come start it in our church. But I want you to start something that's going to revolutionize one area of how people live. Come up with an idea that will change the way people live their life and then spread it around the globe. That sounds like kind of a tall order. I think most of us are already thinking, I don't know if I could actually do something like that. I wouldn't even know how to do it. And during this process, they want you to mentor 10 to 15 leaders so that when you retire, there's someone to carry on the cause for you. And these leaders have to be developed and ready to spread, to to literally spread this around the world. At one point, the plan is to have offices in every nation in the world. And it's all going to depend on these group of people and you. Now, how many of you feel like you could do that? Anybody? Anybody feel like you could do that? I want to wish that I could. But I think what we do is we look at kind of our life and our experience, and we wonder, well, I mean, man, if I couldn't even get this going, how could I, if I can't even get my lawnmower every week, how am I going to do that? If I can't manage my family, my house, how, how can I even do that? But imagine, imagine if on top of that I said, okay, here's the deal. You have a deadline. You have to get all of this done by September of 2017. Three years to do all of that. Now, if you were to take it on... Does anyone feel like this time management sermon is an utter waste of time? If you were to take it on, just imagine what your schedule would be like over the next three years. How much time would you have for your family? How much time would you have for anything but eating and breathing and working this job, this mission. I mean, if you're awake, you're working, right? I think that's most how most of us feel. And we feel like even if we did that, I don't know that I could get it done. 
And having that three years, I have to retire in three. And, and I, have to, I have to leave home. Right? I have to leave comforts. I have to give up my career. I have to leave this awesome church in Cypress, Texas. All I keep hearing is I have to, I have to, I have to, I have to, you have to, you got to, you should. Yeah, this is all bad law preaching. No gospel in here, is there? Not a mention of Jesus properly uh, understood. I mean, reference to Jesus, but yeah, what Jesus said, yeah, not taught properly. How does this guy not have enough time to open up a Bible and actually preach a biblical text in context from Scripture? I know that would be the worst part. And I have to replant somewhere else, and, and I only have three years to get it done. I mean, that would be really stressful, right? So that's about the closest I could come to this. Have you ever wondered how Jesus, in a matter of three years, three years, was able to start a cultural revolution that has historically changed this world? Uh, Was it because he used a day planner? Three years of time. And he didn't have a computer or a cell phone or the internet. Nothing. How did he do all of that in three years? And have you ever noticed when you're reading the Gospels that Jesus gets interrupted all the time? Like all the time, man. If that were me, I'd be like, leave me alone. i got stuff to do. All the time. And never, never is stressed out about it. Matter of fact, he embraces the interruptions. He always finds time for rest. He found time to develop his disciples and started this worldwide revolution during three years of his life. No no viral video on, on Facebook, no ice buckets. Word of mouth. How did he do that? How did Jesus manage his time so well that he got all of that done in three years without stress? I think, one, that seems impossible. If I had to do that, that would feel impo- I would feel overwhelmed. There's no way I could do it. On the flip side of the coin, it gives me hope. If Jesus can do that, and he can do that much and accomplish that much in that short of time without stress, then there's a way for me to do the same. Because my responsibility is not as heavy And as far as I know, I don't have a three-year limit to get it done. And I don't have to die at the end of it, so that's good too. Uprooted from heaven, came to Jerusalem, three years. No stress. Easy peasy. I borrowed that from the Honda Fit commercial. Yeah, um, again, um, wow, just totally reinterpreting what Jesus accomplished in the in the context of time management and stress management, talk about missing the point of what Jesus did. Can you tell me what he accomplished again, please? And I'm not talking about starting a world movement. You might want to mention, you know, dying for the sins of the world, that kind of thing. By the way, if you've seen it, you know what easy peasy is. How did Jesus do it? Here's what I think. I think one of the most important things that he did is that he never lost sight of what his purpose was. He never lost sight of his purpose. Oh, I see. Because Jesus is the ultimate example of the purpose-driven life. Got it. 
from the very beginning, he comes onto the scene. I'm not going to read this, but Luke chapter 4, verses 8 through 21. The beginning of his ministry, he announces, this is what I'm here for. I'm here to heal the brokenhearted. I'm here, here to help the blind see. I'm here to help the poor become rich. I'm here to bring in, usher in the year of Jubilee. I'm the Messiah. So from the very beginning, he knows what his purpose and life is and his mission. And then everything he does from that point on is to accomplish that. When the little children come to him and the disciples want to brush him off, Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is part of my mission. I got time for this. When different unclean people came to approach him to ask for help, and the disciples, I mean, every time, man, we don't got time for an interruption. Leave us alone. Wait. I have time for this because this is my mission. Yeah, again, which texts are you reading from again now, the great purpose-driven Jesus text from the Gospels? I am so not familiar with the way you're telling these stories. I mean, and everything he did for three years was about his purpose and about his mission. And I think getting our life and our schedule and what we do with our time in order has to begin with knowing and committing to our purpose in life. And what text says this again, where Jesus is saying, now look, I showed you how to be purpose-driven, so now you need to find your purpose and follow my example. What's God's purpose for your life? I think there's an easy version of that and a a more difficult version. The easy version of that is you can get out your Bible and you can find out a lot of things that are part of God's purpose for you. Just a lot of things that are part of. Yet Scripture says that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training, so the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. God's purpose for you is to be an ambassador for his kingdom. God's purpose for you is to uh, love your neighbor. God's purpose for you is to help meet the needs of the people around you. I mean, there are several things uh, that you could find, and there's a lot more than that, but you can find a lot of things that are God's purpose for you because they're God's purpose for every other person on planet Earth. But then there's the hard one. What's God's mission for your life? And if you haven't stopped to consider that, and if you don't know whether you're on that track or not, I think today would be a good day to stop and consider that. To pause and take a break and begin to pray and seek God about what he wants from your life. So apparently you need a direct revelation from God to get your unique purpose and mission in life, which no biblical passage teaches anywhere. I mean, does he want you to be in ministry? Does he want you to own an accounting firm? Does he want you um, to go on the mission field? Does he want you to uh, really develop some things in, in arts? I mean, I don't know. But God does, and God wants you to know if you'll stop long enough to listen and tune in and hear. But first and foremost, we have to be about doing what God wants us to do. His will has to be the center of our time and our schedule and our efforts. Psalm 90, verse 12, this is our memory verse this week, says this, Teach us to number our days and recognize how few they are. Help us to spend them as we should. Yeah, that's not exactly what Psalm 90, verse 12 says. I don't see the part about help us to spend them as we should. 
Yeah, that's out of context, too. Let's take a look at Psalm 90. This is a prayer of Moses. Let's listen to Moses' prayer. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O child of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength eighty. Yet, yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Yeah, um, this again is not a time management text. Hmm. We've got a big problem here. Nate Anderson is badly twisting God's word. This is actually a prayer of Moses. Prayer of Moses. And just think about all the responsibilities that Moses had. You know, he went and delivered the people of Israel, and then he's got like, you know, a million people that he's trying to guide on this nature hike um, for 40 years. That's pretty stressful. There's a lot of responsibility. Remember, he was the one that started to get worn out, and his father-in-law, Jethro, came and said, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't be the, the judge for the You've got to get some organization here. You need to have different people that handle different problems. And then all the things that maybe they can't handle, then some of those things can come to you. You're doing too much. You're wearing yourself out. You're wearing the people out. Moses had a lot of challenges. And so here we find him praying this great prayer, help me to spend my time as I should. That's not what he prayed. I just read the whole prayer. I think at the heart of the matter, anyone who's asking yourself, you know, I need help renovating my, my time, my schedule, my energy, what I'm doing with my life. I think at the heart of it, what we're asking is the same question, how should I spend my time? I think it's really interesting that what he says before that is he says, teach us to number our days and recognize how few they are. How could that, how could that help you. Yeah, that's in light of God's wrath, and that helps us to be, well, brings us to penitence. It's law showing us that, well, our lives are about over, and we have to stand before God, and He has wrath because of our sin. That's what's going on in Psalm 90. So that's what God uses, His law, to bring us to penitence, to make us sorrowful for our sin and our misspent days. But with God, there's forgiveness. To spend your time the right way. 
Let me tell you what I think. I think that our life, as Paul says, is like a vapor. It's here and it's gone and it's fleeting. One moment you breathe breath and in the moment the breath comes out, it dissolves and never to be seen again. And that's how the length of our life measures in the scale of eternity. Each one of us were a breath. The moment we're expired, we're gone. On the scale of eternity. And so what I think he's saying is, God, help me to have an eternal perspective so that I'll know what to do with my time. Yeah, it's going to be more than that because what are you going to do with the things that you've done with your time that are sinful? Can we talk about the cross at all? Does the cross factor into your theology at all? Have you, have you heard of it? And I think if we, we don't get that part right, we're going to miss the boat. It's like the bus driver, you know, he's taken the team, they, the football team, they had a Friday night game and, and they're on their way and he took a wrong turn. And it was a while before he realized it. It's like, well, I got some good news and some bad news. Because the bad news is I took a wrong turn. But the good news is at least we're making good time. You know, I think a lot of us, we're going the wrong, we're making good time, but man, we're not even going down the right road. So what we've got to do is we've got to stop and ask God, help us to get a good perspective on eternity. This would be a good place for you to start. If there's something you wanted to do to start beginning to change things in your life this week, this is something you could do. You could take time this week, ask God the same prayer, Lord, help me to number my days. Help me to understand. That's not the same prayer. If you're going to pray Moses' prayer, pray all of Psalm 90. And how short my life is. Give me a perspective on eternity. You know, part of that perspective is not just how short your life on earth is, but how long your life will be when you leave planet earth. And do you want to make this breath? I want to have this really good breath. Make this the best breath I ever had. <sighs> Seems really silly, right? And I got years of life left to live, but I'm focused on this. Wait. <sighs> Getting a perspective, part of that is beginning to understand the now is so short, and I have so much life, and I want to plan for that. I want a prayer for that. So, Lord, show me what to do with my life. So ask God to help you number your your ways, and then ask him to show you something that's a part of your regular daily life, your weekly life, a normal part of your schedule that doesn't belong because it has no eternal value. It's a great place to start this week. You mean like this sermon? God, help me to get a perspective on eternity. And then as you're praying and seeking God about that, and Lord, help me to see something that's a part of my life, my regular routine, my life, that has no eternal value that needs to be cut from my life and my schedule. Like this sermon. And once you've done that, make a commitment to God to cut it out. Let me tell you a good way you can start that. Start that by whatever that is, fasting it through the end of this year. That's, that's about 90 days. 
about 90 days. I was originally going to say fast it for 90 days. Let's just go through the end of the year. Make a commitment to God. I'm going to fast whatever that is. I'm going to fast. I'm going to cut it out of my life through the end of the year till December 31st at the least. And then find someone to be accountable to about it. Share with someone the decision you've made and ask them to help keep you accountable. And then once a week, once a month, at least have a conversation, a text or email dialogue, and check up on one another to see how you're doing with that. Let me give you another, another thing that, that, that you can remember that should help you with your schedule. Remember to mix sweat and slumber. In other words, it's not all about work and it's not all about sleep. What we're trying to do is renovate our lives by applying what stewardship principles from the Bible. Let me give you one from the book of Proverbs 6, verse 6. It says, take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. I'm looking for you. Don't raise your hand. Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer gathering food for the winter, which is really great. They don't need someone to keep them accountable. They just do it anyway. They do it because they know it's the right thing to do. That's a great picture of why we should work hard, although a lot of times we need help. Let me just give you a couple things about ants. Ants work diligently. I mean, when an ant's working, he's just, I mean, he's not working fast, but he's working, you know? Very did. Uh, pick up the grain of sand, march, 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 march. Put the grain of sand down, turn around, march, 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 all day, you know? I mean, they're consistently working. And so we should find ways to be consistent about our work. And part of that comes through planning and schedule trying to get away from these hives where I work too much till I burn out, and then I don't work at all. But they work diligently. And the ants more like the tortoise than the hare. In other words, that's kind of what I just said a second ago. They're going to work, and they're going to go be consistent, and they're just going to plod along and not try to race to get things done first. Ants work together with other ants. In other words, don't try to get everything done by yourself. God has surrounded you with other people to help you. And so use the resources that are available to you. Ants, when they work together, accomplish something far beyond what you think some ants could do, just picking up one little grain of sand at a time. In a matter of time, there's like this entire city under the ground that we never get to see with rooms. And how how do they do one grain of sand at a time? But they do it together. And then one other thing is ants work really, really hard. But did you notice when winter comes, you know what ants do? They hibernate. See, it's not enough just to work, just to sweat. You have to mix in some slumber and some rest. So one good principle that you'll find will apply to many areas of your life is stretch and release. Stretch and release. And so the stretching is... And the Bible teaches us to stretch and release where again? the work and the release is the rest. And the bottom line is we have to plan and schedule both elements into our life. You have to actually plan your rest, plan your work. You know, Jesus scheduled rest. Talking about, you know, how did he get through these three years of ministry, do all of this, not stress out. One of the things he did is he scheduled rest. 
Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all they had done and taught. In other words, we have been so busy. you got to know all the stuff we did. It was awesome. They're going on and on and on and on. I think Jesus was getting tired just listening. And, and then in verse 31, it says, Then Jesus said, well, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place. Let's rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. So they left by a boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. They've been working, they've been working, they've been working, they've been working. And Jesus said, you know what? It's time to rest. We're going to stop the work and we're going to rest. See, what Jesus knew in the very next story that we find, the very next story is when they feed the 5,000. So what happens they go to rest, and eventually the rest starts getting interrupted because all these people start showing up, you know, invading their space. Hey, Jesus, tell us something. I know you're trying to rest, but tell us something. You know, and so eventually he starts uh, teaching, and he ends up teaching all day long into the evening. And so there are 5,000 families there, not 5,000 people, 5,000 families. There are 5,000 men who are counted plus their families. 5,000 families. And so all day, Jesus and these 12 people are managing this crowd, holding the service all day long. Look, we do an hour and a half service, and it wears us out all day long. And then they got to the point where there was a real problem because nobody had food to eat. And that's when Jesus worked the miracle, you know, and he turned the loaves and the fishes, and and they had to organize. Imagine organizing thousands of people. There's 12 of you. And you have to organize thousands of people in groups of fifties and hundreds. And then you got to go around and feed them. I mean, 12 people. Imagine waiting in line with, I don't know, 10 or 15,000 people. And you're hungry. It's time for dinner. And you got to get in that line, 10 or 15,000 of you. And there's only 12 people working in the restaurant. How are you going to get that done? They had a big day. And here's the deal. Jesus knew they'd been working hard and more hard work was coming and we have to stop and we have to rest because we have to rest to be able to do what we're supposed to do and do it well. You have to have rest in order to accomplish God's will the right way. If they were tired, who knows what would happen? Here's something else. God will know. God knows when you need rest because something big is around the corner. Oh, uh, What? Where does God promise to give you rest because something big's coming around the corner? I'm not familiar with that text. And we need to learn how to listen when the Holy Spirit says to rest. Take some extra rest and chill out and get quiet so that we can build up a reserve for what's coming next. Our muscles work the same way, right? You stretch and release. Um, Not just stretch and release, but you work out, you work out, you work out, you work out. But you're not supposed to go back the next day and work out those same muscles again, right? You're supposed to let them rest. Because what happens is, if you don't let them rest, when you're working out, all you're doing is tearing down. Did you know that they actually grow and become stronger during the rest time? All of the tears and the muscle fibers rebuild and repair, and it strengthens. So the actual growth happens during the rest. But if you just keep working, keep working, keep working, keep working, and you don't take time to rest, what happens is your muscles actually tear down. And so we have to mix, stretch, and release. You know, God applied this in his life. God believes in stretch and release. He believes in sweat and slumber. On day one, created the heavens and the earth. 
Days two, three, four, five, created all the living things, everything you see up in the sky, separated the water and the land. Day six, he created us. And day seven, he rested. So even God understands, even for him, that's how he functioned. So now the Sabbath is all about time management. (sighs) Work, 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 and rest. I'm going to rest. And he expects the same thing from you and me. He commands it of us. Exodus chapter 16, verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much as usual. Talking about gathering in the manna while they were in the wilderness. Do you even understand the Sabbath and the Mosaic Covenant? You probably should listen to my debate with Jim Staley. Quartz for each person instead of two. Then as the leaders of the community came and asked Moses for an explanation, he told them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow will be a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath day set apart for the Lord. So take or or bake or boil as much as you want today and set aside what is left for tomorrow. Sounds just like the ants who collect all summer so they can rest in the winter. As a biblical stewardship principle, you can apply to your time. Verse 27, some people went out anyway on the seventh. A biblical stewardship principle? What? Seventh day. And they found no food. And the Lord asked Moses, how long will these people refuse to obey my commands and instructions? You know what they did wrong? They worked when they were supposed to. Yeah, like the way this pastor is disobeying God's command and instructions to actually preach the word. Supposed to rest. You know it can actually be a sin to work when God wants you to rest. Yeah, and what's the solution for our sins, crucified, risen Savior? Does this sound familiar to you at all? Verse 29, they must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you. God gave you a day of rest is a gift. Jesus said it this way in the book of Mark, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people, not the people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So God has given us this gift that we're supposed to schedule into our week where we take a day and we rest. Why? Because we need rest to be able to do the things that we're supposed to do with the rest of our week. This is another good place for some of us to get started renovating our schedule. Do you schedule a full day of rest into your week? Don't ask me to answer that question because... I am also a work in progress on this. Can I just say? Oh, so you're a work in progress on this. In other words, you're guilty of of not obeying God's will the way you've laid it out here. So what's the solution? You're just a work in progress? You'll get it right eventually? Or is it a crucified and risen Savior who bled and died for your sins? Say that. Make a commitment this week. That you're going to begin. Oh, yeah. So there's the solution. Just make a commitment. You've been falling short, but just, you know, make a New Year's resolution. Exercise your will and it'll you'll get somewhere. You'll start making some progress. Planning a full day of rest into your schedule every week. Because that's part of God's plan for you. If we want our schedules to operate the right way and our time and energy to function the right way, then we need to listen to the creator who designed us and operate the way that he says we should operate. Now, you might have to sweat a little harder six days of the week, 
Might have to plan a little better six days of the week, be a little more diligent six days of the week. But you do that so that we can be obedient and rest one day during the week. And your rest day, I don't you know, most, most of us, not all of us, have a, a Saturday and Sunday schedule off. Yeah, he has no concept of the difference between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant at all. I mean, seriously, has this guy even been to seminary? And so maybe what you need to do, because if you have too many obligations on Sunday, maybe you need to make Saturday your rest day. And Sunday isn't. You do your errand Sunday afternoon. For some of you, maybe Saturday is your work and errand day, but Sunday... I mean, you rest. You come to church. Rest doesn't mean you don't come to church. And, and you rest for the day. Let me close with this last, last thing. So we've got to remember, busier isn't better. Remember, God's will is the way. Remember to make sweat and slumber. And remember to schedule the first thing first. When you're planning, there's one thing that should always be planned and scheduled first. So it's interesting. They feed the 5,000. The story we were just talking about, they feed the 5,000. And so they had this incredibly long day of work. So they'd been working, they rested, had this incredibly long day of work. And then just picking up in, in Mark chapter 6, verse 45, it says, immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back on the boat, head across the lake to Bethesda while he sent the people home. And after telling everyone goodbye, he went up to the hills by himself to pray. How did Jesus cue sappy music? This is a, an emotional manip- manipulation technique designed to make the people feel like, oh, the God, the Holy Spirit's now descending, you know, getting ready to, you know, work with people as they make commitments. In this particular case, commitments for better time management and stewardship. Do this in three years. How did he do it? He was always about his purpose. Always about his purpose. What was his purpose again? Did it have anything to do with bleeding and dying for our sins? He made sure to schedule time to rest as well as work. And he made sure the most important thing was always a part of his life, and that was time with God. (sighs) He developed his life spiritually. He stayed committed to the Father. He found time to pray. He found time to rest in God. And he did this often. A lot of times we see it in the morning, but even think about think about if you've got some difficult things and stressful things happening in your life. Think about Jesus coming toward the end of his life. He knew what was going to happen at the cross. And what do we find when it goes to the Mount of Transfiguration and lets God minister to him there? We see he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to get alone and pray and let God minister to him there. Because he knew he needed strength from God to be able to take on the things that were before. Yeah, could you please stop talking about Jesus as if he's somehow only the example of a purpose-driven life? Can we actually talk about the mission that, that he did accomplish? For him. And if Jesus needed that, how much more do you and I? Uh, well- so that's all we get from Jesus. The ultimate example of a purpose-driven guy. So just follow his example and better manage your time and, you know, and make sure to keep the first things first and all that kind of nonsense. All, all law, no gospel at all. We didn't hear the gospel a bit. So everybody leaves feeling miserable. Oh, I didn't, I, I haven't really done what God wants me to do. And uh, so I, I got to just commit myself to try harder. 
you come back the next week and you get the same kind of sermon. Oh, I feel terrible. I just got to commit myself to try harder. You never hear the good news of what Jesus has done for you. And you know what you end up doing? You end up flaming out. Why? Because you're literally living under nothing but law. But the good news is that Christ bled and died for your sins. Repent and be forgiven. His yoke is light. Yeah, think about it. All right, you get the point. We're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>